Well, good morning. I'd like you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you have your Bibles with you. Many have referred to this as the love chapter, and rightly so, because the word love is used nine times in this chapter. But in reality, love is a major theme of the entire Bible. In fact, you can call this the love book. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Galatians 5, 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. 1 Timothy 1, 5 says, But the goal of our instruction is knowing a lot. No, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. Colossians 3, 14 says, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, pursue love. Philippians 1.9 says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Hebrews 13.1 says, let love continue. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another. Philippians 2.2 says, Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love. 2 Corinthians 8.8 says, Be sincere in love. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Hebrews 10.24 says, Stimulate one another to love. And what is God saying? He's saying that love is the pinnacle of life. It's the highest expression of life. Love is, as 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, the greatest of these. And in the first three verses of chapter 13, he shows us the prominence of love. He tells us that me plus everything minus love equals zero. If love is not the greatest contribution of my life, I make no contribution. And then in verses 4 to 7, we see the properties of love. He gives us 15 descriptions of love. Here's what love looks like in street clothes. Here's how to put shoe leather on that idea of love. And he tells us love is patient Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. And love is not rude. We have covered those descriptions. This morning, we want to pick up in verse 5 with the seventh description of love. It does not seek its own. Love is not self-seeking. 
Love doesn't go through life asking the question, how can I get? Love goes through life asking the question, how can I give? Love isn't always saying, what pleases me? Love is saying, what pleases you? Love is not self-seeking. To be self-seeking is almost an understood attitude in our society. Last time I was at Six Flags, I watched two mothers take their kids up. They had preteen kids. They were old enough to ride the big rides, but they came up and they showed their kids how to climb through the fence and go down this empty walkway, and then jump back into line ahead of everybody else. And I thought to myself, not only are you guys self-centered, but you're teaching your kids how to do this, and it's an acceptable thing. I remember going into the bathroom recently, and I stood at the urinal. That's what guys do. And I looked down into the urinal, and I saw that somebody had spit their gum into the urinal. Now, just to help explain, I never thought I'd be preaching on urinals. (laughs) You can flush a urinal, but gum can't go down a urinal. So somebody in their mind thought, I'm tired of chewing my gum. I'm going to spit it into the urinal which means somebody is going to have to come along later and reach down into the urinal and pull out your gum. What is that? That's self-seeking. When you go to the grocery store and you've got your shopping cart and you take it out to the car and you put your groceries in the car and you say, ah, I could take the cart back to the little cart holder deal or I could just kind of leave it here and go on. Leaving it here is self-seeking. You ever pull in a parking spot? There's a good one. You start to pull in, there's a shopping cart sitting there. You left it last week, but this week, the person who left it (laughs) is so selfish. I was in Starbucks yesterday morning. There was a line. Um... And uh, so they started, they were making the coffee for people that were way back in the line. So they asked this lady, she was with her husband, said, he said, well, what would you like? And she said, the usual. And she turned around and started talking to her friend that she was talking to there. And and the guy kind of (laughs) goes. So her husband looked awkward. So he elbows her and says, he wants to know what you want. And she turned around and said, the usual. And she started talking again. And I thought to myself, you know, I guess that's why you pay so much for a cup of coffee. $4 for a cup of coffee, I get to be treated like I'm somebody special. Couldn't believe it. She left, I went up there, and they said, what do you want? I said, the usual. Love isn't interested in itself. It's interested 
in others. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love is never selfish. Linsky said, if you can root selfishness out of a relationship, you have planted the Garden of Eden. Love serves other people. Love gives its life for other people. Love is interested in the good of other people. There's a sad commentary on this in Philippians chapter 2, and if you'd look over there, I want to show you something. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Notice verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul said, I want to I send somebody to find out how you're doing, and I can only find one person who is genuinely concerned about your welfare. Everybody else is interested in themselves. If Paul was here today and he wrote this, what would he say about us? Would you be the exception? Everybody's thinking about their own interests except who? Love doesn't seek its own. What are your goals in life? What is it you want to accomplish in life? And let me ask you this. If you accomplish it, who benefits? You or other people? What are your goals for the rest of today? For the rest of this week? If you achieve your goals, whose interest do you have at heart? You see, love has the welfare of other people at heart because love does not seek its own. I used to know a girl who said, whenever I get depressed, I go out and buy myself something. Kind of like the lady I heard about who said, uh, when I'm down in the dumps, I get myself a hat. A fellow looked at her hat and said, oh, so that's where you get them. We have this philosophy that if I'm down, if I'm depressed, if I'm discouraged, I need to do something for myself. The reality is that if you're discouraged and you're depressed and you're down in the dumps, you need to spend yourself for someone else. Because the way God operates is that selfishness does not truly bring me satisfaction. What brings me satisfaction is giving myself to other people and for other people. Let me show you a great passage. Look in Isaiah chapter 58. Back in this big book of Isaiah chapter 58, there are a couple great verses that give us a promise. Isaiah 58 verses 10 and 11. 
Notice verse 10. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and, bring, and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's an if-then promise. If you will give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like the midday sun. How do you get out of depression? You give yourself away to other people. You love other people because love does not seek its own. Eighth description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that love is not provoked. The King James Version says love is not easily provoked. I like that word. It's not in the original, but it kind of gives you a cop-out. I'm not easily provoked. The verse says love is not provoked. And the Greek word means to sharpen, to stimulate, to rouse to anger. It's the idea of a sudden outburst. Love never gets upset. Love never gets irritated. Love never blows up. Love is never ready to fight back. You say, wait a minute, Dan, what about righteous indignation? Okay. If you're cleansing the temple, you can get upset. In fact, I think as Christians, we need to get more upset at sin and at Satan and at what sin is trying to do in our lives and the lives of other people. We need to get angry about the things that God is angry about because the Bible tells us we're in a war. In fact, there's a great passage in Acts chapter 17 where Paul goes to Athens and it says he walked around the city and he saw all the idolatry in the city of Athens and it says his spirit was provoked within him. He got angry inside as he saw what Satan was doing to people in that city. But see, love does not get angry about what people are doing to me. heard about a fellow who went to the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, and uh, he stood in line for three and a half hours and had to put up with the lines and the waiting and all the regulations, and then I think he got up there and found out he had the wrong paperwork, and he had to leave and come back, and so he went through all of this. Finally, he got his license, and uh, he went to a store to pick up a birthday gift for his son. And he's telling the story, and he says, I brought my selection of baseball bat to the cash register. Cash or charge, the clerk asked. Cash, he snapped back. Then he realized how upset he was, and he apologized to the lady and explained to her what he had gone through and why he was a little edgy right now. And the woman sweetly replied, shall I gift wrap the bat, or are you going back there? <laughs> I can second that emotion. You ever notice that people seem 
to be getting more and more angry today than ever before. I mean, in 1997, the Oxford English Dictionary included a new phrase, road rage. About that same time, we came up with a new phrase that I only heard recently, and that's air rage. According to FAA records from 1995 to 2001, there were 1,655 incidents of air rage directing anger toward airline employees. We're getting so angry we have to come up with new words to describe or at least give excuses for why we're angry. We live in a a world gone mad or at least gone angry. Someone has said we come into the world kicking and crying and screaming and not much changes after that. The only difference is how we deal with it. Some blow up, some clam up, some express it, some suppress it. Proverbs 25, 28 says, If you cannot control your anger, you are as a helpless city without walls, open to attack. Love is not provoked. Love doesn't say, if you do that to me one more time, if you push me one more inch, I'm going to break your neck. If you don't do it my way, I'm going to get huffy and puffy, and I'm going to take my toys, and I'm going to go home. You know, next time you get angry at someone, and usually when you get angry at someone, you strike out at them, either physically or verbally. Next time you get angry at someone, remember this. The reason you're angry at that person is because you don't love them. Love is not provoked. Love bears the hurts, receives the injuries, takes the insults, accepts everything without irritation and without becoming angry. You know what happens when you become angry? It tells you that you haven't gotten the previous phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, that love does not seek its own. Anger comes because I have decided that I'm going to seek my own. I have decided that I matter more than you. So if you cross me, then that triggers my automatic reaction of getting angry at you. Anger is the opposite of love. And you can tell people that you love them all you want to, but if all you ever do is get angry at them, they're going to have trouble believing you, and they should, because you don't love them. William Barclay says there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are continually thinking about their rights and those who are continually thinking about their duties. And our duty is to love. When we get angry, we're going through life thinking about our rights. 
My biggest problem, I, I can relate to road rage. I would love to teach courses on how to drive. Because I, I'll come along and somebody's sitting out in the, the passing lane, going less than the speed limit. And that frustrates me. Amen. I thank you. <laughs> but see, what have I decided? I've decided it's my right to have that lane, because if I want to speed, that's where I need to go. That's my right. Somebody cuts you off, you say, well, that's my right. I own that territory up there, and you came into my territory, and I'm mad at you. See, I've decided I've got rights. Somebody fouls you hard in basketball, and you jump up because you're going to fight with them. You've decided it's my right to be fouled lightly. See, the problem is we, we have this preset mind that says, I have my rights and I matter more than you. It doesn't matter that last week I did the same thing. It doesn't matter that last week I probably cut somebody else. I had somebody tell me in church one time, they said, I was out running with my friend and uh, you came by in your little red truck and you almost ran over us. And they said, I was just about to say to my friend, there's my pastor. And then I had to say, get out of the way. (laughs) Needless to say, I didn't tell my friend that was my pastor. But she said, you were probably thinking about your message or something. I said, yeah, that's probably. uh..." No, I was thinking about myself. But see, we do it to other people. But when it happens to me, I want to trigger that anger that says, you stepped in my territory. You offended my rights. Anger happens because you have decided that you matter more than other people. You want the cure for anger? When you consider nothing to be your right and everything to be your duty, then you're not going to have a problem. You need to get rid of your rights. If you've got rights to say, I have the right to, be, to walk into Starbucks and say, the usual, then you need to back down on your rights because you're not going to get upset if you don't have any rights because nobody can step on your rights. Get rid of your rights and understand that your duty is to love, and then people can offend me and offend me and offend me. It doesn't matter, because I don't have any rights. And since my duty is to love, when they offend me, it gives me a great opportunity to love them afresh once again. Love is not provoked. The ninth description, and the final one we'll look at this morning, is also in verse 5. Love does not take into account a wrong. Now that's an accounting term. Love never keeps books on evil done against it. Love doesn't hold someone else accountable for something that they've done to me. Love forgives and love forgets. 
heard about a fellow who said, every time my wife and I have a conflict, she gets historical. He said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, historical. Because she rehearses everything I have ever done wrong in the history of our marriage. This Greek word used here is used most often of God. And the Bible tells us that God doesn't keep books on you and me. God doesn't write down all the wrongs that you have done against him. It's a word that's often translated imputed in the Bible. Romans 4.8 says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For the Christian, I don't have anything written down in my account of wrongs against God. You say, well, what's in my account? Read Romans chapter 4, and it tells us Christ's righteousness is in your account. That's an amazing statement. He takes all the wrongs out of my account, does not hold them against me, forgives and forgets. And in place of those, he puts Jesus' righteousness in my bank account before God. Have you ever offended God as a Christian? I do. Every day. But God doesn't say, Green, if you keep this up, I'm going to start writing it down. God forgives and forgets. Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will remember their sin no more. Well, if God can do that for me, don't you think maybe I can do that for you? Love doesn't keep records of offenses that other people have done to me. Resentment does that. Resentment keeps books and reads over those things and keeps that hostility going. I once met a lady in Canada, and I was talking to her, and and she told me that uh, she used to be in church regularly, but somebody offended her at church, and she no longer went there. And I listened to her story, and I thought, you know, you really got a point. They did offend you. But then I found out this offense happened 10 years ago. So for 10 years, she's been writing this excuse that they offended me and holding on to that and resenting that and growing bitter about that, and it had affected her more than it affected anybody that she was upset about. Sometimes we bury the hatchet And then we carefully mark where we buried it so we can go back and dig it up again. Revenge is not sweet. It usually eats you up. And love doesn't keep records of wrongs done by other people. Love forgives and forgets. And our example in doing that is Jesus. Colossians 3.13 says, Forgive each other just as the Lord forgave you. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you got 
little lists of things that certain people have done to you. That's the third time he's... Have you got little... You haven't written them down, probably. I hope not. But you've got little mental lists of, you know, that guy did this, and, and then last month he did that, and, and it's starting to add up, and I can remember all these details. Do you have those lists? Why not give your list to God and forgive the way Jesus has forgiven you and actually celebrate your forgiveness by forgiving others the way you have been forgiven? That's what love is. Carl and Edith Taylor lived in Waltham, Massachusetts, and Carl had a very good job with the United States government. One day he got word that he was to go to Okinawa for several months. Those several months actually stayed, extended into more than a year, and Edith stayed home and did the work around the house and kept their garden. And At first, Carl wrote to her on a regular basis, and then the letters began to decrease, and they got less and less and less until one day, He wrote a letter to Edith, and he said, I want a divorce. I want to marry a Japanese girl from the island of Okinawa named Iko. Edith was shocked, but she decided she wasn't going to be vindictive. She wasn't going to viciously attack her husband. And so she wrote a letter to Carl with tears streaming down her face, and she said, I still love you, Carl. There's only one thing I want to ask of you, and that is that you'll write to me once in a while and let me know how you're doing. So about a year went by, and she got a letter, and in it, Carl said, we've had a baby daughter. Another couple years went by, and she got another letter, and it said, we've had another baby daughter. Then another year went by, and Carl sent her a letter and said, I just found out I've got terminal cancer. And the doctor says, I have less than a month to live. Would you be willing to raise the two daughters that I have had in Okinawa? Edith wrote a letter back, and she said, certainly, I'll take the kids. Send them on a plane. And they put them on a plane, and she met them at the plane and took those two little Japanese-American girls into her home. She had to get a job to help cover the expenses. She spent most of her day working and taking care of these two little girls, and finally it became obvious that she couldn't keep going at her age any longer. And so she wrote a letter to Eco, Carl's second wife, and she said, you come and live with me and care for the children, and I'll open my home to you. And so Eco came, and she lived with Edith, and together in that home, they raised those two children. That's love. Because love doesn't keep books. Adolf Coors IV gave his testimony in Cape Girardeau a number of years ago. I still remember his testimony. As a young teenager, a ranch hand murdered his father. 
And he was so angry about it and so bitter about it, and he could never forgive the man, and it really affected his life. In fact, it shaped his life. His marriage was a victim of this bitterness because he took out his hostility on his wife. He never could resolve that bitterness that he felt. He was still struggling with that when he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in his recent book, The Power of an Ordinary Life, Harvey Hook writes this. These are the words of Adolf Coors. He said, Later, my vision of serving self through power and personal possessions had been replaced by telling God's love story to others. As a result, I went to meet Joseph Corbett, my father's murderer, at the Colorado State Penitentiary. But Mr. Corbett would not meet with me. So in place of a face-to-face meeting, I wrote him a letter asking for his forgiveness for the hatred that I had been harboring for 17 years. I told him that I had forgiven him. And as I walked away from the prison, I felt God's love, and I was a free man. That's love. Because love doesn't keep books. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this practical passage of Scripture that paints a picture of what love is. And as we looked at part of that picture this morning, we are reminded that love is not selfish. And love doesn't get angry. And love doesn't keep books. And Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts today in areas where we're guilty of doing these very things and help us to realize that if we're doing these things to other people, we're not loving them. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender these things to you, surrender ourselves to you afresh this morning. I pray that your love would live its way out in our lives in such a way that we might truly be those people who seek the welfare of others, who don't get angry even when we have a right to, and who don't keep books but simply forgive and forget. We thank you for the privilege of being able to do that because that's exactly what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. And we thank you for that in his worthy name. Amen.